For those of you who are new, my name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to say a word about our teaching series and then introduce our speaker this morning. So very briefly, today is the last message in our series called Unbelievable. Unbelievable has been about the love of God, the love for which each and every one of us was created to know, the deep meaning of our lives. And these last two messages have made an attempt to address issues that sometimes are a barrier to us experiencing and living in the fullness of God's love. So today's topic is about science and faith. And I think that can be a barrier in the sense that, especially in a place like Silicon Valley, it can feel like science and technology are actual real things that shape the world in which we live. And faith is kind of soft and nice, but what is it really? So that's the topic for this morning. How do faith and science interact with one another? Can they be friends with one another? Our speaker this morning is longtime River partner Najib Tozen. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Right. There's some fans in the fan club, face painters, you know, people with big banners. Uh, Najib is the co-founder of a company called Delight. Delight creates low-cost solar-powered products that are designed to improve the lives of the poor of the world. They have impacted well over 100 million people across 70 countries, so I feel like that's decent. <laughs> decent. Uh, after 15 years as the president and CEO, Najib continues to actively engage Delight in a board role, and he also has uh, a role in working with other social entrepreneurs to help them in scaling up their impact. Uh, late last spring, Najib and I were on an epic uh, journey through Portugal, walking about 100 miles together. Uh, we were talking about all kinds of things, but one of the things Najib was talking about was his passion for matters of faith and science and how he was beginning to write down things he thought would be of interest to people on this topic. And I thought, that would be a fantastic topic for a Sunday morning. So without further ado, would you please welcome Najib Tozen. Wow, second service really does have more energy. I like it. <laughs> hey, let's all pray together. God, thank you for Najib and the unique story of his life, his passion. Uh, the things he's given his heart to bless him this day, anoint him by your spirit, grant him the grace to speak your word with power so that it would be for us your whisper and your word to us. And we pray for ourselves that you would give us hearing hearts, encourage us, open our eyes to see you more clearly. We ask all of this in the good name of Jesus and all God's people said amen. 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 All right. Thank you. Hello, River Church. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I used to think that science and faith were totally incompatible with each other. That basically you had to choose one or the other, but you couldn't have both. I thought on the one side you had reason, on the other side you had superstition. And this wasn't something explicitly taught to me, but it was kind of like in the air. It was in the culture, and I just absorbed it. I'm wondering if any of you out there have ever felt that tension between science and faith in our culture. 
I think especially here in Silicon Valley, which is kind of like an epicenter of science and technology, there are times when I feel it. I mean, I remember um, not that long ago being in this gathering of some other tech CEOs. There are about 15 of us. It was this roundtable discussion. Somehow, I don't remember how, the topic of religion came up. And someone in the room kind of said, well, you know, all of us here in the room, we're all rational, smart people, so all of us are atheists. And most of the room kind of laughed and nodded. But, you know, why, why is there that perspective? And how do we as Christians respond to that? So as far back as I remember, I have loved science. And I need to know in the room here, how many fellow nerds are there? Raise your hands proudly. Oh, you know, I think uh, this is interesting. We have a little higher representation of nerds in the second service and the first service. That's good. <laughs> how many people are married to a uh, nerd? Okay, excellent. Good, good. All right. It's good nerd representation at the river. I, I like That's important. Um, so I think for a lot of us who are like me uh, and wired this way and have this kind of inclination, uh, especially amidst our very techie Silicon Valley culture, it can sometimes feel confusing. Like, how do we integrate these parts of ourselves? And I think for some of us, that tension between what might seem like conflicting worldviews can become a hindrance to our relationship with God. It can create these seeds of doubt. But even if this isn't how you're wired, even if you didn't raise your hand um, and you never felt that inner tension, I still think that this message today is relevant for you. Uh, I bet you have someone in your family, someone in your friend circle who is wired this way. And for those of you with kids or have kids in your life, when they start learning about scientific ideas like evolution or the origin of the universe, and if doubts come up for them, when they don't see how all this fits with their faith, what do you say to them? How would you talk to them about it? So I'm hoping what I share today can help equip you and to think about how to engage with our more science-minded brothers and sisters and kids. So speaking of kids who are very skeptical about faith, this is me when I was in the eighth grade. And at that time, I'd just been learning about the scientific discoveries around the origins of the universe, and I found this topic totally awe-inspiring. So when we had our annual science fair, the topic I chose was the Big Bang and the expansion of the universe. I was excited to talk about it with my classmates because I just wanted to like blow their minds about the subject. <laughs> and after I did my presentation, this classmate, I didn't know that well, came up to me and said he wanted to talk to me more about what I'd shared. And I was thinking, all right, I got through to somebody. There's like someone else actually interested in this stuff. This is great. Uh, but it turned out I had kind of offended him. And um, basically, he went on to tell me that everything I shared with the class wasn't true that God made the universe and the earth 6,000 years ago, and there definitely was no such thing as the Big Bang. So I didn't see that coming. I didn't grow up with any religious upbringing. I, and back then, I considered myself an atheist. I didn't have friends who were religious who were expressed 
belief in God. So I didn't know how to engage in this conversation. I actually don't remember saying that much in response, but I remember him going on to say that, well, you know, at his church, there were people who used to study science, but then they discovered God. And once people discovered God, they never went back. And he went on to say that he prayed I would come to see the truth. So I didn't feel offended in the conversation. And I actually could tell even then that he was coming from a good place and it took a lot of courage for him to have this really awkward confrontation with me. But honestly, I came away feeling kind of sad for him. The religion he was describing just seemed really small. And frankly, it seemed that these were people just afraid to face reality. Um, and all this just reinforced this view that I already had, that science and faith not compatible with each other, and that believing in God meant shutting the door on the mystery and the wonder of the universe that was being uncovered through the scientific process. So it was in my mid-20s that I became a Christian, and that is this whole other wild story, and I don't have time to get into it now, uh, but maybe that can be for another sermon if they ever invite me back after this. We'll see. Um, but it was around then that I began to understand that science, that learning about the physical, natural world and how it works isn't at odds with our faith, but actually can bring this whole new depth and understanding to our faith. And it's actually possible to fully embrace both. And I found, for me, that science can open up the scriptures in totally new, refreshing ways, and that science actually has drawn me into experiencing the awe and the wonder of God. And God has left so many wonders and mysteries for us to explore and to contemplate. Now, this is just one example here. This image is one of, one of the many incredible pictures taken just last year by the James Webb Space Telescope. And this is a picture of a massive cloud of gas and dust called the Pillars of Creation. It's thousands of light years away from us, and it measures four light years across, which is, like, huge. So to get some sense of scale, if we shrunk everything down in the universe so the Earth was just one inch long, the pillars of creation here would measure 50 miles across. That's big. Uh, the massive cloud in space actually is a nursery where new stars and new planetary systems are being formed. I mean, this is totally incredible and something we had no idea even existed until just a few decades ago. For the last century, scientists have been peeling back the layers of our understanding of the universe and have been uncovering a cosmos that's more immense, more beautiful, more awe-inspiring than we could have ever imagined. Dr. Keltner is a psychology professor who runs UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, and he actually collaborated with Pixar on the science behind the movie Inside Out, uh, which is a great movie. Uh, he recently published a book called Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. And in the opening, he writes, how can we find the good life? 
20 years into teaching happiness, I have an answer. Find awe. Keltner defines awe as the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your current understanding of the world. And now Keltner, he writes this from this very secular point of view. And I think it's actually really amusing that he treats this like this brand new discovery. But the reality is that this isn't a new insight at all. Because the wisdom of being in touch with that feeling of awe is everywhere in Scripture. Throughout the Bible, there is a call for us to fear God that is mentioned over 140 times. Now, the Hebrew word in the Scripture for fear is the word yirah, which doesn't exactly have the same meaning as the English word for fear. The Hebrew word yirah might be more accurately translated as awe or trembling reverence. That feeling we might have in our inner being when we are in the presence of something incredibly beautiful or majestic or more powerful than us. So when the Bible is calling us to fear God, it is calling us to find awe and wonder. Here's one of these many references to fearing God, and this one is in Proverbs. Proverbs is a, the book of wisdom in the Bible, which covers wisdom in nearly every aspect of life. And I think that it's really interesting that Proverbs opens with these lines as kind of an introduction or preamble. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction and prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and the riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. By substituting the word um, awe or trembling reverence for the word fear in this passage, I think the meaning of the verse becomes a little more clear. The awe and trembling reverence of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. When we tap into a sense of awe, we realize that we are not the center of the universe, we're not in control, and we certainly don't have all the answers. And I think this helps us take on an attitude where we can be curious, where we can have a learning mindset, where we can be open to changing our minds. And it's this mindset that is the beginning of knowledge and of wisdom. And if we don't come at life with that attitude of humility, it doesn't matter how much we read or study or how smart we are, we're destined to be fools, and we will not find wisdom. Many of the Psalms are intended to try and capture and evoke that feeling of being in awe of God. And here's just one example from Psalm 8, where David says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. You've established a stronghold against your enemies 
to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. I think it's really interesting that David finds value in taking time to consider the heavens, the moon, and the stars. And that contemplating the natural world, this has been a practice that people have been doing for thousands of years. And in this psalm, the contemplation ultimately leads David to a place of wonder and of gratitude. To realize that despite our relative insignificance with the scale of creation and the power of God, that God would still care with us and that God would still dwell with us. Now, Back in the time when David wrote this psalm, they really only knew about the stars that were visible in the night sky. Uh, and on a really dark night, you know, in the desert when there's no moon out, that's about 5,000 stars. And if you've ever seen that, that's a huge number of stars. It is very awe-inspiring. It's a big number. But now we know that in the observable universe, there are more than 200 billion trillion stars. That is a crazy number. That is a huge number. That's far more stars than all the grains of sand on all the beaches and all the deserts on the earth. And we know that nearly every one of these stars have planets orbiting around them. So as awe-inspiring as the heavens were to people who lived in David's time, how much more awe-inspiring are they now? How much more do the heavens evoke trembling reverence? And yet, despite this incredible vastness of the heavens, which certainly makes me feel very small, increasingly, it looks like our planet is really special and really unique. The more we study all these other star systems, we're finding that planets like the Earth seem to be incredibly rare. And the events that led to there being life on Earth seem to be so improbable that many scientists are starting to think that maybe those events have only happened once, ever. That maybe Earth is a home to the only conscious beings in this entire universe. Now, the jury is still out on this. There's lots of interesting debate on the topic. There are books, there are podcasts. I've consumed many of these. I think the topic is really interesting. Um, but regardless, the lack of obvious signs of life that we see in this beautiful universe, the lack of obvious light signs, shows just how incredibly precious our world is and how precious each human life is. What is mankind that you are mindful of us, human beings that you care for us? Now, many of us may assume that the church and science have been fundamentally at odds from the beginning of the scientific revolution. I mean, that's what I used to think. But it turns out that many of these stories about conflict were actually invented or exaggerated over time. So modern historians now pretty much universally reject this idea that religion and science have been in conflict throughout history. 
medieval Catholic mathematicians and philosophers are widely considered to be the founders of modern science. And it was believing in God and a creator that provided the initial motivation for people to study nature systematically because there was an underlying belief or assumption that nature and mathematics were the products of a mind governed by laws. And there was this belief that nature could be knowable. Almost all of the early giants of science, like Isaac Newton, described their study of science as a way of learning the mind of God. But now, what about more modern scientists? I mean, they must all be atheists, right? Well, it turns out, no. In the 20th century, 65% of Nobel Prize winners in scientific fields were self-identifying Christians. And another 21% of them were of the Jewish faith. Only 11% identified themselves as atheists or agnostics. And this chart shows the percent of Nobel Prizes won by self-identified Christians. I find it really interesting that the percentage is lowest in you know, fields like literature and is higher for scientists who focus on the natural sciences like physics and chemistry. Werner Heisenberg, one of the most brilliant scientists ever and one of the pioneers of quantum mechanics and a lifelong Christian, once said, the first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will turn you into an atheist, but at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. At the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. Now, I've realized that my older son is wired very similarly to how I am. So last year, I started putting together this running list of awe-inspiring scientific discoveries for my kids when they get older, kind of like a science devotional. <laughs> and there are things I've learned along the way that evoke that sense of wonder and awe of God's creation and how there really does seem to be this like sense of design and beauty and purpose in creation. And I was thinking of sharing a handful of these with you all today. I have like I have this huge list now. Uh, but because there's so many great examples, I decided just to focus on one today. So even after all these years, I still think the scientific discoveries around the origin of the universe are totally mind-blowing. And I wanted to talk about this because, like my classmate in middle school, um, I've run across a number of Christians who see this as an extremely uncomfortable topic. Um, you know, worried that it's potentially threatening to their faith. But to the contrary, what science has actually uncovered about the origins of the universe should be extremely encouraging uh, to those of us with faith. So there was a woman, Jana Harmon, who wrote a book very recently compiling stories of atheists that converted to Christianity. And you know, she says there were a number of reasons, of course, that people she interviewed that inspired that transition uh, from atheism to Christianity. But the number one reason cited was when they learned about the scientific discovery of the origin of the universe. So why is that the case? Well, to properly tell the story, I actually need to zoom out and give some context. So for thousands of years, there have been two competing worldviews, pantheism and theism. 
And those worldviews are very much at odds and alive today. So pantheism basically says that the universe and nature is itself God or contains God or the gods. And atheists can be included in this category as well because they think the universe is all that is. And for atheists, the universe is itself kind of like a mindless God governed by the laws of nature. So central to this pantheist belief or worldview is that the universe is not something that has been created. There's no external creator. In this worldview, the universe is timeless and has no beginning. Now, this worldview has been around thousands of years, and many cultures today is still the dominant worldviews. Many of the worldviews outside of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are based on pantheism. The famous Greek philosophers like Plato, they were pantheists. Uh, many people these days that I run across in Silicon Valley or in academia have a pantheist worldview. Uh, people who might describe themselves as like spiritual but not religious or new age they likely have a pantheist kind of point of view. On the other side of the coin, theism has also been around for thousands of years. And theism is the view that God is separate from the universe and nature. And over 3,000 years ago, the Jewish people were theists surrounded by pantheist cultures and traditions. The Jews held this very countercultural view uh, in their context that the universe itself is not God, and the universe doesn't contain God or the gods, but instead the universe in nature points to an external creator. And that means that the universe isn't timeless, but instead had a definitive beginning. There was a moment in history when God caused time, space, and even the laws of nature to actually come into being. And what I love about this debate, and I find it really compelling and fascinating, is that these views, they're mutually exclusive. There's not really a middle ground here. I mean, either the universe had a beginning or it didn't. So either the pantheists are right or the theists are right. They both can't be right. And this pantheist view of the universe being eternal and unchanging was held by an increasing number of scientists and academics in the early and mid-1900s. And theism was starting to be seen as kind of like, you know, superstitious and outdated. But then in 1929, uh, an astronomer named Edwin Hubble discovered something really weird. He started uh, studying and classifying galaxies, and he noticed that all the galaxies he was looking at were receding away from the Earth. And the further away the galaxies were, the faster the galaxies seem to be racing away from us. So this meant something really unexpected. For one thing, it meant the universe was not static. It wasn't unchanging. But the fabric of space itself was expanding like a balloon. And an expanding universe, when you think about it, has these really wild implications. Because if the universe is expanding and things are getting farther apart, well, then if you wind back the clock, everything would have been smaller and closer together. The galaxies would have been packed closer together. And if you wind back the clock far enough, and now we know that clock needs to be wound back about 13.8 billion years, then the universe would be shrunk down to a point of infinite density and zero size to an actual moment of creation, 
a time in history before which time has no meaning, a beginning. Now, there were many in this broader community uh, who just couldn't believe the implications that the universe could have had a literal time and point of origin. And this shook many people to their core. Uh, one example was uh, Robert Jastrow. And Jastrow was a brilliant scientist and founding director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. He was a lifelong agnostic. But with the increasing evidence of there being an actual moment of creation, he began to hold a belief that, well, if there was a beginning to the universe, then there must also be a creator. And I just love how Jastrow describes this bewilderment that he experienced as this dawned on him. So he wrote that the discovery of a cosmic beginning is an exceedingly strange development, unexpected by all but the theologians. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> I love the humility he has in, in describing this feeling. And since Hubble's discovery, there's been more and more supporting evidence uh, that's come out that, actually, that there actually was this time and place of origin of the universe. And one of the most significant pieces of corroborating evidence that pretty much won over even the toughest skeptics was discovered completely by accident by a young scientist in the mid-60s named Arno Penzias. Uh, he was working at Bell Labs. He was testing the super-sensitive antenna that was like the most sensitive antenna ever developed at that time to detect faint radio waves. So to his surprise, he set up the equipment, and he found there was this like low, mysterious noise that seemed to be coming from all directions. So after tuning and retuning the equipment, there must be something wrong, he determined the source of the waves. It wasn't coming from a local source on Earth or anywhere on Earth. It wasn't coming from the sun or the moon or anywhere in the galaxy. The faint signal was coming from everywhere. And he said, that's impossible. So he apparently like cleaned out the equipment really thoroughly. He found some pigeons in the equipment, got rid of those, cleaned it all again. But the noise was still there. And he eventually realized that this noise, this background radio waves, exactly fit something that was predicted very recently by a team of physicists at Princeton who calculated what the after effects would be of an explosion that created the universe. And they predicted this low hum, kind of this echo of this explosion that created the universe a background radiation that was exactly at the same frequency that Penzias heard on his radio wave antenna. So after connecting the dots, uh, Penzias eventually won the Nobel Prize in physics for his discovery. And more recently, in 2012, NASA was able to produce a much more updated picture of this. And this is a map of what the cosmic background radiation looks like when more sophisticated instruments are able to measure slight variations in the signal across the sky, which actually represent small little pockets of different densities of how the matter was distributed at that moment of creation. Um, it's still kind of fuzzy to us today, but we see here um, that there's some element of like form in this, even this very early stage. And this map is often referred to as the fingerprint of God. 
and it represents a snapshot of the earliest possible observable stage of the universe. Now, we now know that there was this very particular distribution of matter that turned out to be balanced at an incredible level of precision that was just right for galaxies and stars to form. Many other sort of configurations just would have, nothing would have formed. No stars, no galaxies, nothing. It was just balanced, just right. And what I think is so mind-blowing is that this background radiation, this fingerprint of God, echoes everywhere across the universe. It's visible at all locations in the universe as long as we know how to listen for it. And it is proof of this moment of creation. Arno Penzias spent his last years living in San Francisco, and he actually passed away just a few weeks ago um, in January at the age of 90. He was Jewish, and he maintained a strong belief in God throughout his life. He once said about this discovery, if I had no other data than the early chapters of Genesis, some of the Psalms, and other passage, passages of scripture, I would have arrived at essentially the same picture of the origin of the universe as is indicated by the scientific data. In Psalm 19, David writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. And I love how David evokes this sense of awe in looking at the stars and the heavens. But he couldn't have known just how prophetic and amazing these words are in light of what we now know about the universe, what's been revealed. Because it turns out the heavens literally do pour forth speech day after day in the form of this mysterious background radiation that we've only just been able to learn to hear and interpret. And this speech with no words has been silently passing through our bodies and is buzzing in the air all around us every second of every day, echoing and testifying to the moment of creation. Well, this talk really only just scratches the surface. Um, I put a, on the screen a couple of good resources if you want to dive deeper in this topic. And for those of you who are wired like me, uh, I hope you're encouraged that it's possible to integrate both the science-minded parts of ourselves with the faith side, that science is a tool to help us understand the universe. And the universe fills us with wonder and awe and ultimately points us towards God. And if it's not your natural inclination to be interested, if you didn't raise your hand at the beginning, uh, you know, first of all, thank you for um, giving me the chance to share about this topic. Um, that I think is so fascinating and so meaningful. And I hope you can take something out of today's message that helps you share the awe and the wonder and the love of God for those who may be struggling to reconcile a scientific view of the world with a Christian worldview. And I hope everyone here can take some time this week to go outside at night, look at the stars, 
and consider the heavens and take some time to experience the awe and the wonder of God's creation. Thank you. Just want to give you a brief moment to digest some of that as the worship team comes up. Turn in pairs and uh, interact over anything in Ned's message that um, evoked wonder for you, something that you want to remember. Or, on the other hand, if there is some other way that you are um, connected with a sense of awe in the presence of God, you could share that as well. So just turn in pairs. Uh, share that, and then the worship team will come and leave us just in a couple of minutes.